0: Welcome to the M&A Source Podcast, a podcast brought to you by M&A Source, a nonprofit professional organization that provides training and education for small to mid-sized business mergers and acquisitions intermediaries. In each episode of the podcast, we will interview leaders in the M&A world to discuss education opportunities provided by M&A Source, trends in M&A markets, and useful insights provided by the experts that use them. Thank you for joining us.
1: Hello, and welcome to this edition of the M&A Source Podcast, sponsored by M&A Source, the source of opportunity and professional growth for mergers and acquisitions intermediaries and strategic professionals in the lower middle market. I am your host, Lamar Stanley, Head of Business Development and Originations with Cap America, a lower middle market private equity firm based here in Nashville, Tennessee. And I am particularly excited today to be joined by Alex Mazer with Big Shoulders Capital based in Northbrook, Illinois. If you're not familiar with Big Shoulders, they're a family office that make debt and equity investments in underperforming lower middle market operating companies. So think distressed or even turnaround situations typically. So I was particularly looking forward to this conversation since we had found ourselves in a unique time where many companies find themselves in a stretch of underperformance, unfortunately. While it's never our objective with this podcast to be overly topical with the content, Instead, trying to make these episodes more resources that could be useful well into the future. Alex is a great guest who can provide both content that is particularly useful in these strange times, but also he provides good tips for intermediaries and business owners that are useful in any environment. So with all that said, welcome, Alex. Thank you, Lamar. Glad to be here. First, if you would, tell us a little bit about your background and then also a little bit on Big Shoulders.
2: Sure. Glad to. So I've been hanging around sort of the turnaround and restructuring world for the last 10 years in a variety of different functions and focuses, one of which has been sort of in the distressed liquidation business, buying and selling assets on behalf of companies and banks. And then for the last seven or eight years with Big Shoulders Capital, and we're focused in the industrial vertical. So we work with privately owned commercial industrial businesses who, for any variety of reasons, are facing some uncertainty and need. Help navigating that with liquidity solutions. We've come in as as debt, as a lender to uh, industrial company, and/or as a as an investor in a business. Traditionally, it's manufacturing companies, but we're involved in construction companies and in the oil field. We gravitate to businesses with hard assets on the balance sheet that traditional cash flow lenders are not as comfortable in dealing with.
1: Well, great. Well. I had the pleasure of getting to hear your webinar uh, about a week ago that you did for m a Source, and that was the reason I wanted to have you on because I thought it was such great content. But the, the title of the webinar was, So Now What? And before we go there, actually, talk to us a little bit about what you guys are seeing out there and, and where we are currently.
2: Sure. So we're seeing a, a, still a lot of uncertainty. We see it with the business owners that we speak to and deal with, as well as our, our borrowers, and the banks that are oftentimes our referral sources or other forms of liquidity and, and uh, partners. So still a lot of uncertainty. I was uh, on the webinar panel a couple of weeks ago. It seems like still a lot a lot has changed just in a short period of time. We're now up to, uh, an additional 10 million or so in unemployment claims in just the last couple of weeks, it feels like. So now we're at 30 million. I think that what we see is, is companies scrambling to get in the queue and qualified and receive their PPP funds. So, that's a topic of, of regular conversation with our borrowers and the companies that we're working with. Very limited liquidity, specifically from more traditional banks. I think they were overwhelmed with uh, administering the PPP and in working with their existing borrowers. So, I don't think that there's a lot of liquidity as far as other traditional lenders refinancing companies. I do think that a large part of the more alternative financing market, the sort of shadow financing world, is uh, active and open for business, even though there might be some tighter credit underwriting and and, uh, conditions. As far as what else we're seeing, we're spending a lot of time sort of in all things energy-related and commodity-related. Oil prices were down negative $40 a week or so ago, so every company in the energy world is is, uh, impacted by that. And so we're spending a lot of time with a variety of companies, whether it's traditional oil field services or manufacturing companies that are selling into the oil field in the energy world, and uh, still a lot of uncertainty about when we're going to open up and how companies that are particularly impacted by that will come back.
1: To give us a little bit of a framework about how to see the world through you guys' eyes, how much of your time currently are you guys spending on the existing portfolio and how much You know, looking out at these opportunities that you just described,
2: it's a balancing act. It's probably uh, feels like for now about a third of our time is with our existing borrowers, because we play in the distress space. All of our clients and engagements are all high touch. We're running into the fire. Generally speaking, these are not healthy, under leveraged, cash flowing businesses. So everything is sort of high touch, and how we're pulling up our sleeves alongside existing clients or prospective clients to help. Navigate what uh, is a very overwhelming time and challenge for the businesses that we work for. The rest of our time is really playing offense. We think that for us and for other companies out there that are equipped and capitalized and prepared to play offense, there's a lot of really wonderful opportunities for us to identify companies or lenders or stakeholders that need a transaction, that something needs to happen sooner than later. And the extent that we can be creative and get prepared, they're can be wonderful opportunities. Well, on that note,
1: and I hesitate to ask anyone to make predictions on what's going to happen next during particularly these unprecedented times, but always. But do you guys have any outlook that you're operating under or a paradigm or a framework that you're looking out for the next weeks, months for?
2: We are, like everybody, hopeful that there's a relatively quick cure and that the states that have are choosing to open up now are able to do so without a significant second wave of implications. So I think we're all going to find out about what that means together, kind of live time here, and hopefully it doesn't extend what we're doing right now. We are being uh, hypersensitive to our sort of underwriting investment thesis, which is always focused on downside protection and is now obsessively focused on downside protection. So we're, for example, and when we're analyzing Uh, an appraisal or some sort of a collateral valuation. We're certainly depending on the industry, but sort of taking a discount to that based on what we're seeing more recently in today's marketplace. So we're much more focused on downside protection, I think. At a high level, we think that there are pockets of manufacturing, which again is the industry where we focus, where there's big opportunity. I think anything tied to government, and it can be seen in different facets of industry. So for example, it's no surprise that the commercial aerospace business is down, but we have a client who's actively transitioning their business, which was always split between commercial aerospace and defense. And they are now prioritizing and shifting more to the defense world because that business is booming right now. Still under the umbrella of aerospace, the commercial side is soft, but the defense side is is busy. We think that there's gonna be uh, increased onshoring of manufacturing. Again, we live in that world. So we think that there that would be generally good for us and for a lot of small and privately owned manufacturing companies here in the States. I think we all learned the hard way when we were looking for ventilators and digging into where the generic pharmaceuticals are manufactured. It's almost all in Asia. And when those companies were not willing to export because they were facing their own critical needs, we realized how dependent, maybe overly dependent we are. So we think there's going to be an onshoring of manufacturing. And as I mentioned earlier, we're spending a lot of time now on projects tied to energy. We think there'll be increasingly more opportunities here in our part of the country tied to automotive. Certainly that we're not going to have the same recent sales that we've had over the past few years. I don't think it's going to dip down to where it was at the eight or nine million dollar unit annual sales like it was in the Great Recession. But saw a statistic that in the last two weeks of March. There were uh, less than 300,000 units sold compared to projections of about 570. So we're already trailing in about, over the last couple of weeks at least, roughly half of what projected auto sales were. No industry will be unscathed, but the companies that are adaptable and can pivot to where there's pockets of demand, we think will continue to be successful. And we've seen that so far. In the used machinery market, which was a which is a marketplace that we pay close attention to and are actively involved in, late model equipment we find is still maintaining its value, and it's the older and lower end assets that have had a big drop off. Again, tied to low commodity prices and and uh, other things. That's interesting. Those are
1: stats I've not heard regarding the auto. That's I've not heard much about that industry to this point. But on that note, let's talk a little bit about executing the turnarounds. How do you guys Think about those opportunities and specifically when you're looking at energy, when you're looking at auto in the coming months. How do you guys tell the difference between a turnaround situation and a falling
2: knife? It's a great question. We are not experts in this. We try to be, but playing in our space, we've been hit and beat up ourselves before. But we, as I mentioned earlier, try to think obsessively about sort of downside protection. So, where's there an opportunity to lose? Where we gravitate towards. Businesses with considerable asset value, they may need a balance sheet restructuring as far as their senior debt and liabilities, but where there's assets that we can underwrite and understand, so we're very much underwriting to that. And we are curious and want to understand the story. So we dig in and understand with each of our prospective clients, the history, why we are where we are and how we get to where we all want to go generally speaking if we can stick to what we know that helps us obviously make more good decisions some of those good decisions have bad outcomes and in today's marketplace no one's got a crystal ball obviously but the short answer to your question is uh, obsessive sort of focus on our downside protection and understanding the story and the uh, and the folks that are that, that we'd be working with so valuation and and also underwriting the, uh, the team you
1: mentioned the folks you work with and and I did want to take out a little bit of the content from the webinar. In the webinar, you mentioned Sequoia Capital's note to their founders and CEOs, the note that was entitled Coronavirus, the black swan of 2020. And you pulled out a quote that said, having weathered every business downturn for nearly 50 years, we've learned an important lesson. Nobody regrets making fast and decisive adjustments to changing circumstances. In downturns, revenue and cash levels always fall faster than expenses, in some ways, business mirrors biology. As Darwin surmised, those who survive are not the strongest or most intelligent, but the most adaptable to change. Talk to us a little bit about what that means to you guys and why you pulled that out and and how business intermediaries and, and owners should think about that quote.
2: Sure. It came out of a, a little bit of self-reflection. In our company, I think we may have been a little slow to respond to this and and probably like most. I think our principal admirably felt a loyalty to employees and may not have been quick enough to forecast the immediate financial implications associated with this new environment. And we could have made decisions more quickly related to fixed costs, not just employee headcount and, and compensation, but other sort of costs. I think that some of the changes and decisions that we made in response to the current climate are decisions that are, should have been made to benefit our business regardless of COVID. And to the second half of the quote, adaptability wins. I've talked about the aerospace guy that we work with who is now hyper-focused on defense work. We're involved with a tool and die and injection molding business that has shifted and picked up contracts for defense and ventilator components. I think the companies that are focused exclusively on industries that are dead or particularly distressed will not survive. I subsequently read an interview with the founder of Airbnb and in in light of what's happening in today's world, they have weekly board meetings and his objective in those meetings is to make three months of decisions every week. And I just think the quote resonated with me and I think it's the adaptable that will survive and need to be responsive and decision-oriented despite all the uncertainty.
1: On that topic of hyperactivity, how involved are you
2: guys in your projects? We're very involved. As I said, touched on earlier, everything we do has some degree of distress. We like to joke that we're sort of running into the fire. We're not dealing with low leverage, healthy cash flowing businesses. And so part of our solution and our value proposition is not just that we bring liquidity, but we bring the experience of navigating these uncertain times. So we're proficient in in negotiating with senior lenders. We are effective in understanding all of the options for companies, whether that be things like receiverships or assignments for the benefit of creditors or in other circumstances, navigating bankruptcies and things like this. So we've got a lot of tools in our toolbox that allow us to sort of creatively navigate this distressed space. And of course, for most, Business owners it's their first time there and it's hard enough to focus on running the company during the day, much less with the added distraction of how to navigate a fatigue lender and attorneys and advisors and all the other implications. so you know, we're very very involved. the transactions can be all consuming but from our chair that's where a lot of the value is created because we're not afraid to invest in, and deploy capital on scenarios where are generally illiquid because other companies and lenders shy away and everyone in our firm were sort of joked that culturally we're more of a blue jeans group and so we'd like to really understand the businesses that we get involved with and try to figure out how we can put together the most creative and effective solutions so long-winded way of saying we're very very involved nothing that we get involved with is for the most part on cruise control it's all high touch
1: well, to, to get a little bit more into the weeds of your level of involvement, do you guys have any specific tools that you use over and over and over or rules of thumb or KPIs that you're particularly watching for all of your projects? Or is it case by case?
2: It's a little bit case by case, but every every engagement has a few sort of key metrics to your point that need to be achieved in order for there to be the right outcome. So oftentimes when we get involved with a company. It's a business that has struggled with a lack of liquidity, the bank wasn't giving them any rope and so they've been short on liquidity and consequently maybe they've lost out on sales or other sort of things. And we can kind of look back at historically where they need to be. So one KPI that we always wanna understand is sales relative to break even. So what's the break even threshold and where are our sales relative to that number? So we at the very least wanna get to that place so that we and our clients aren't burning cash. So sales is one of those things. And then oftentimes the businesses that we get involved with, they're family-owned, privately-owned, and so they might be second- or third-generation-owned companies. And so there are low-hanging fruit, cost-cut opportunities that we look for. And and so the ability to get involved quickly and identify those and take advantage of those sort of cost-cutting opportunities, which, again, from our new chair, are Fairly accessible and easy to achieve, but from the for any variety of reasons may not have been made by the previous ownership group. So sales and low hanging fruit, cost cutting, and understanding working capital means it's, we, as most lenders and investors in this share, with a focus on the distress space, really uh, want to see what's called a 13-week cash flow projection. It's a wonderful metric and projection over a short period of time, critical to understanding short-term working capital needs. That's everything for, for us as a lender or as an owner of a business to understand what the near-term needs are and whether the company is creating cash or burning cash, and if so, how much. So those are some of the few things that we look for. Again, like I touched on, our obsessive focus on downside protection means that we look for asset-rich businesses. That's sort of stage one. And then stage two is how are you gonna grow sales? Where are the low-hanging fruit? cost-cutting opportunities, and then really taking a look at the 13-week cash flow projection to see what the immediate future looks like.
1: To anchor there for a second, the 13-week cash flow projection, I've heard that from a number of groups, and that seems to be what a lot of people are focusing a lot of their attention on during these difficult times. Can you talk about the level of detail that go into you all as you're constructing those?
2: Sure. It's a, uh, It's intended to be a pretty accurate description of the inflows and outflows. So it it should be um, based on accurate assumptions of sales and, and collections. It can provoke a strategic conversation about certain payables that can be extended, certain expenses that don't need to be paid. But it's intended to be fairly comprehensive and fairly accurate. Again, the biggest indicator is what are going to be the cash needs of the business over the immediate term. And so if a business is forced, for example, by their secured lender or strongly encouraged to bring in what's called a turnaround consultant or a restructuring advisor, it's not uncommon that the first thing that that consultant does is to sit down with the CFO or controller to try to populate their 13-week cash flow model, because that sort of dictates a lot of what they do next. If the business is going to burn a lot of cash in the next 13 weeks then the bank may choose to fund or not to fund into that. And the consultant and all the stakeholders really need to know what that what that looks like to confirm that there's enough liquidity there. If there's a meaningful shortfall, that impacts what suite of options are available. If the business is creating cash, that may incentivize the existing lender or ownership to put in more capital if necessary. So the assumptions that Going to that are, are obviously like everything else and tend to be very accurate. And because of its short term nature, it should be. And it's a, uh, it's a very important tool. And, and anytime a company finds themselves in another section of the bank, whether it's the special assets or a workout group, that's typically a model that that banker wants to see and understand because it informs the near term remedy and game plan for how all the parties work together. So it's a very, very important short term projection that we like to see. I know that other lenders like to see it important for all parties involved.
1: Since you mentioned those lending relationships, and I realize that you guys are a participant in that market, but what are you seeing in the lending market in general? And do you have any predictions about what business owners can expect on that front?
2: What we found in talking with the lenders that, that we know is uh, certainly at the banks, everyone has been consumed and pulled into the sort of PPP administration underwriting Departments, so it's all hands on deck to turn out years worth of production in, in 30 to 60 days, and particularly when there's not a lot of uh, rules or, or any precedent there. So I think it's been all hands on deck to help existing borrowers get their PPP funds, the uh, payroll protection money, secured and funded. And now I think lenders are are going to have to turn to to a triage for existing borrowers. I mean, no one here is unscathed. And so I think it's really about focusing on existing portfolio. And despite what they may say, it, it really is probably not as much about growth. I think all of the commercial banks are a lot in much better shape than they were 12 years ago. So that's good news. And I think there is liquidity there. I just don't think that the traditional banks are focused on new business right now. I think they're focused on existing portfolio. There's a couple different There's more than a couple, but within the alternative finance space from which we play, I think uh, a lot of these firms, as I mentioned, are open for business and looking for opportunities to fund. I do think that, not surprisingly, there's a different layer of credit underwriting. And so companies that may have qualified and may have been funded three to six months ago, I think, depending on the industry they're in and the uh, current circumstances, may or may not pass the underwriting Metrics. So for example, spoke to a alternative lender in Detroit this morning. Um, historically, a large part of his portfolio and focus because of where he's at geographically has been tied to automotive and the automotive suppliers. And his team is looking at that industry which with much more skepticism. On the larger end of the alternative lending space, the BEC business development companies, I think as an example of lenders that focus on servicing the the private equity world and Lamar you can probably speak to this even more than I can being closer to that sort of institutional level those businesses are uh, are challenging those credits are are tough right now because they were really underwritten to cash flow projections which may not be materializing right now in today's market so i think there's a there's a there is certainly a lot of liquidity out there but i think selective pockets of capital are are more active than others and i think by and large the Commercial banks, maybe outside of the SBA groups within those banks, are going to be fairly quiet for the near term. I think that the SBA banks and the SBA programs will be active because they've got the government support programs behind them.
1: That is pretty representative of what we have seen out in the market as well. And it truly uh, has been amazing watching the past few weeks, the PPP program in particular, jam up banks generally just because they're, it's just become a bandwidth issue. So it'll be pretty interesting to see how this unfolds in the coming weeks. Last thing, if I am one of M&A sources, many business advisors out there, what are things that you're telling business owners or what should I be telling a business owner as they watch this crisis unfold?
2: Well, to build on what you just said, Lamar, I think the, the first thing is to get the PPP application, get in the queue and hopefully get in the queue in a place where you're going to get approved and funded while there's still money to be deployed. Beyond that, more important than ever is probably communicating with stakeholders, with banks, with customers, with vendors, and figuring out ways to work together. As touched on before, to make quick changes, there's a need to make a change. It needs to be made quicker than it has in the past because there's just not the opportunity to work out of it. So quick decisions, I think, are really important. And then I think there's just even more so than ever, maybe opportunities for innovation to look at the ways of doing business differently than they've been done. Before and most businesses, I think, will have opportunities here. So, I read an article that a firm that is in the real estate business, which I know generally speaking is way off right now, actually doubled their February sales focusing on virtual 3D tours. And then, saw, you know, saw Nike really surprised everyone because they shifted and took advantage of and really grew their e commerce business. In light of all this, even while brick and mortar retail is closed or way off, so I think there are ways for a lot of the business owners and clients of the folks in the M and source to to maybe look uh, for opportunities in this innovation. I think that for the businesses who survive, they'll be in a, a much better place because some of their competitors will not have. So even if there's a slower recovery and a smaller pie, there should be good opportunities for companies who are well positioned and well capitalized that's by and large what we see. And I think it applies to the advisors within the MA source. So advisors and companies that were focused on five times EBITDA, multiple sales, you know, that mindset may have to shift a little bit in today's lending environment, in today's world. But nonetheless, the ability for people within this organization to help business owners transact and sell, I think that service will be as important as ever. And in this environment, a lot of businesses will be forced to to sell. And so the seller who in the past may have held out, wasn't a lot of urgency, was waiting for maybe an unrealistic purchase offer, again, because there was no need to sell, he or she may feel a lot more pressure to sell right now. And so whether it's because they're, for any variety of reasons, they may feel more pressure to sell. And so for the folks in this room, while the sale prices and the multiples may be lower because of the capital markets and all the uncertainty, maybe there's an opportunity to make up for it by having more transactions and really helping business owners who are overwhelmed. And again, maybe in a position where they have to sell or have to refinance or have to do something outside of the ordinary course that they they don't know how to do, but certainly that the uh, M&A source professionals can help guide them through.
1: I agree with all of that, and I think that's probably a good spot to land us. Thank you, Alex. If anybody has any turnaround questions or would like just to reach out to you guys, where can they find Big Shoulders?
2: Sure, our website, bigshoulderscap.com. My contact information is on there. Phone number is 224 927 5329. Again, 224 927 5329, and uh, we'd be more than happy to talk with anyone whether it's an opportunity that I think is in in our wheelhouse or in someone else's that I know I'm more than happy to brainstorm. After the webinar last week, I referenced uh, the different ways of selling assets in distress, a, a, a bunch of different structures. And so folks had reached out and I was more than happy to share some more information about that with them. And so I've always enjoyed my interactions with the M&A source and would be happy to engage with anyone that's had any questions is new to the turnaround space that I think that we're all uh, living
1: in. Well, great. Well, thank you, Alex. If you'd like to learn more about turnaround projects or any other topics, feel free to reach out to Alex or also you can visit MA Source's website at masource.org. And please feel free to reach out to the staff listed there. And as always, I would also like to highly recommend any M&A professional to join M&A Source and to also attend our semi-annual conference events where courses on the topics like the one you heard today are taught in much more detail. Thank you for supporting the show. And to find more episodes like this one, please visit masource.org. I'm your host, Lamar Stanley, and I look forward to chatting with you again on the next episode of the MA Source Podcast.
0: Thank you for joining us for the MA Source Podcast. If you would like to learn more about MA Source or would like to join, please visit MA Source's website www.masource.org, where you can find a wealth of information to include information about M&A Source's biannual conferences. Thanks again for joining. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope that you'll go to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of the M&A Source Podcast.